somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. At the Movies. An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. I've seen Star Wars about a dozen times. I've seen Star Wars 17 times. 17 times. Star Wars? Uh, 24 times. 40 times and it was great each time. 45. About 57 times. You can never get too much of Star Wars. I... I've seen the first Star Wars 153 times. All together, we have seen Star Wars 324 times. We've been here for six days and it's great! Hello there. Welcome to episode 12 of the Star Wars at the Movies podcast. My name is Stephen Danley, and for this round, we'll be heading back to sunny Southern California to finish off our Orange County double bill. Now, at the end of the last episode, I described this show's guest as a, a major lifeline for this podcast, and I meant it. I figured a fitting way to demonstrate would be to start out with an, an important correction. Back on episode 10, I discussed the first public preview of Star Wars that took place at the North Point Theater in San Francisco on May 1st, 1977. Star Wars was not listed on the marquee, but the world premiere of a film titled Alaska was. Otherwise reputable sources have attributed it as a decoy title for the sneak preview of Star Wars, but as it turns out, there appears to have actually been a legitimate short film titled Alaska that had a brief run at the North Point, screening ahead of the Paul Newman comedy Slapshot from April 24th through May 2nd. That critical detail was brought to my attention by none other than journalist and film historian Michael Cote, who retrieved period newspaper ads to corroborate, and he posed a logical question. Would a pre-worldwide phenomenon Star Wars really need a secret codename? And beyond that, I wondered, why would it be put up on the marquee for a single preview screening at 10am on a Sunday? Now, if we only knew what Alaska and its quote, uproarious, lusty entertainment actually was. Well, that's still a mystery. For now. I first became aware of Michael's film-related historical work when researching for the very first episode of this podcast back in 2016, and his efforts have been a constant presence ever since. He's been a regular contributor to sites such as In70Millimeter.com and Cinema Treasures, and he's written over 20 articles on the history of Star Wars theatrical exhibition over the past 20 years. Ever since having him on to discuss the record-setting Westgate Theater in Oregon back on Episode 4, I've been wanting to bring him back for a full interview, so I'm glad to finally fulfill that objective. Michael's also a Southern California native and had plenty to share in terms of his movie-going memories and insight into several significant Orange County cinemas. We also talk about the evolving methodology behind his monumental endeavor to trace the theatrical history of Star Wars. Before we embark on all that, I wanted to channel that energy with a quick stats preamble on a, a trio of theaters that are mentioned. First, the City Center Twin in Orange. Opened in 1972 and one of the only three theaters in the greater Los Angeles area where Star Wars opened on May 25th, 1977. Presentation, 70mm with Dolby Stereo. 
its original run, 30 weeks, demolished in the mid-90s. Second, the big Newport in Newport Beach. Opened in 1969 and advertised itself as, quote, the largest screen west of New York, and uh, it proclaimed that, quote, if you haven't seen Star Wars at Edwards Newport Cinema, you haven't seen it. Presentation, 70mm with Dolby. Its original run, 54 weeks beginning on July 6th, 1977. Still alive and well, though modernized. Finally, the Cinedome, also in orange, also opened in 1969, but Star Wars didn't play there in its original release. That said, Empire had a combined 41-week original engagement in 1980, and Jedi followed with a 33-week run, both in 70mm with Dolby Stereo. Sadly closed in 1999 and demolished in 2000. Almost all of that was courtesy of Michael Cote in one form or another. Alright, on to the feature presentation. And now for our feature presentation. I was born in Anaheim, California, uh, which is Orange County. Uh, what's Orange County famous for? Um, well, you know, obviously Disneyland, you know, Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, we have the Angels, uh, Major League Baseball team. You know, the Ducks for hockey. Had the Rams for a little bit. Um, great weather, world-class beaches. You know, I think by now Orange County has its own uh, identity, although it... it some respects, it's still kind of uh, in the shadow of Los Angeles, since it's arguably part of greater greater Los Angeles. Um, I've lived in Orange County for several years, and on several occasions as well. I've lived a few years in Northern California, um, the California Central Coast, and also in Italy and Germany for a while. And then when I was growing up, my family was in the military, uh, and as such, we moved uh, quite a bit. So I actually have a difficult time identifying a single place as home. Um, so I kind of prefer simply Southern California. But if the measurement is birthplace, then yeah, I'm from from Orange County. Um, at a young age, I uh, was able to you know travel travel throughout the world, which is uh, you know at the time it was I don't know if it really meant anything because it, I didn't have a say in the matter. But um, you know I feel pretty lucky looking back because a lot of people don't ever travel. I mean some people live in the same town their whole life and. Uh, you know, if they're happy, that's fine, but it, it seems a little odd to me. I don't think there's any downside to uh, traveling, even if it's just in your own country. But certainly, uh, it's good to see the world. Um, as far as uh, interests prior to Star Wars, um, some of my earliest memories of things that really uh, interested me and uh, got a lot of enjoyment out of, I, I loved Evil Knievel. He was popular there in the early and mid-70s. Um, and then I loved the TV series Emergency. That was probably my favorite show as a kid, along with uh, any number of Saturday morning cartoons and things. But as far as like a real, what I would call a real show, <laughs> it certainly wasn't real, but you know what I mean. 
So yeah, prior to Star Wars, it was all about emergency. And then uh, not long before Star Wars, I uh, started getting into baseball, both playing as a you know little league as a kid and watching the uh, professional games. And uh, 1977 was a, probably a pretty big year, <laughs> not just because of Star Wars, but that I also attended my first Major League Baseball game that year. Those two things were uh, kind of competing with one another for my interests. Was this at Angel Stadium or somewhere else? Uh, it was b- both of those things. The first game I attended was was uh, here in Anaheim, uh, the Angels and uh, the Milwaukee Brewers. And then uh, later that year, uh, I lived in Northern California at the time, uh, saw the Giants in San Francisco play the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> Um, which and uh, I actually kind of had a kind of two favorites at the time. It was obviously being from Orange County, I uh, started liking the Angels, but they were pretty anemic at the time. <laughs> they, they weren't very good, and uh, you know they had Nolan Ryan, Hall of Famer, but you only saw him every few days. So, 1976 was the first World Series that I watched on TV, and that was the Cincinnati Reds and the New York Yankees. So. I uh, somehow got hypnotized by the uh, mystique of the Big Red Machine, so that consumed a lot of my, my interest then. Loved the Reds for a, for a few years there until until the, the Big Red Machine you know started to get dismantled and players were traded and, or retired. And then at that time, like uh, once I moved back to Southern California, I uh, kind of became a full-time Angels fan again. Why I'm not a Dodgers fan, I can't answer that. It, it could be that I'm from Orange County, but I'm not sure at, at, at a young age that I would have chosen that. I don't recall any relative or friend pressuring me to pick a team because certainly the Dodgers were a much better team then full of stars and storied history and all that so I'm not sure suppose being from Southern California I could have picked either team but there you go yeah so did you go to the movies often when you were younger and were there any particularly memorable films that you saw that made an early impression on you I don't think I went to the movies that often um certainly not as often as as I would start to do after Star Wars. Um, I saw mostly Disney movies. I think one of the earliest memories was Robin Hood, the, uh, you know, the animated Robin Hood. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest laughing back and forth at what the other has to say Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day And then probably whichever classic Disney films were re-released during the early and mid-70s. Probably saw most of those, maybe all of them. And then um, I can remember seeing, a must have been a re-release of Swiss Family Robinson. The only non-Disney movie I think I saw prior to Star Wars would have been The Bad News Bears, which I, I'm sure I wanted to see because it was about baseball. Or, no, or the kids, kids at school were probably talking about it. I remember my grandmother took me to see it. I think she regretted that because, uh, you know, if you've seen it, there's a... A lot, of, a lot of, you know, kids, uh, potty mouth kids, which I loved as a kid. It was funny hearing sure. kids say things that you could not possibly get away with in your own home. But uh, um, there's that. And then, like I said, mostly Disney stuff, Freaky Friday, No Deposit, No Return, those kinds of movies. And then <laughs> that all changed with Star Wars. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So when did you first become aware of Star Wars and what about it caught your interest? Um, I want to say I saw a commercial for it on TV, but I, I can't say so that might be a false memory because I, I don't think there was a lot of TV promotion for movies back then. Uh, so the kids at school were talking about it for sure. And then um, it just started from there. So where did you first see it and who did you see it with? I saw it. My, my recollection is I saw it on the final day of school of what would have been third grade for me. So probably sometime in June of, of 1977. And uh, I recall being invited to spend the night at the friend's house on that last day. And then uh, during that visit, we went to see this movie. But it was not, it it was them who chose to see it. I was just seeing it because I was there. 
I, d- I don't recall being the one to push to go see it. Okay, and do you remember which theater this was? Well, we lived in Orange County, and it could only have been the city center, because that, that was the only place it was playing at the time. I would not have known that at the time, that we were living in, we were living in Orange, that, that theater was also in Orange. Uh, we lived in Orange, and I went to school in Tustin. Ah, all right. So do you have any memories of what the city center was like back then? Um, I believe that's the only time I ever went there. And, ha- and having not, not, not being a real movie buff at the time, the idea of going to different theaters and comparing theaters mm-hmm. and caring about when and where and how you saw these things, that was not a thing yet. So none, I, I can't really say what it was like. I, I do know as a kid, we went to the drive-in a lot. So, so really the obvious difference is that it was a, you know, it was a normal hardtop theater. And back then, most, most theaters were still fairly large. So the idea that it was a large theater also doesn't really mean much to me. The, the city center is certainly significant because it was part of the uh, original batch of, of theaters that played Star Wars when it was in its limited opening. So it's sort of famous just for that alone. You know, it was one of the original 43 from the original opening weekend. So yes, it's, it's famous for that reason, but it's, it's kind of gotten forgotten because the sequels ended up playing at the Cynodome, which back, back then the city center and the Cynodome were in the same booking zone. So movies played at one or the other. Um, and the Cynodome was a you know, m- much more, I think, a more popular and famous uh, venue. So, so, yeah, the sequels played at the Cynodome. However, what, because of that, it has created a lot of false memories of people. I mean, I've, I've had arguments with people, you know, usually strangers online, and you know how that ends up going. But, uh, you know, people swearing they saw the original movie, you know, at the Cynodome. And, you know, you have to... How do you, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tricky thing trying to argue with a stranger because, you know, you don't want to come on too strong because they're just going to back off if, you know, they're going to put up their defenses if some stranger's trying to tell them something about their life because people think, well, you know, who are you? You couldn't possibly know what I did on such and such a day. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into that in a bit. Um, but in terms of the movie itself, when you first saw it, what were your initial impressions? Well, I loved it. It was enjoyable. I had seen nothing like that. But, but oddly, I, I don't think that I became a, uh, a big fan immediately. It was, I think becoming a fan had to do with Star Wars becoming a phenomenon and just being in the public's eye for so long. It just never let up. Um, so the idea of the movie being more than a movie, you know, I think contributed to me becoming a fan. The idea, the opportunity to see it more than once, which which I had never done prior to that, you know. And and eventually there were toys, and there were soundtrack albums, and uh, T-shirts, tie-in merchandise. That 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 was all new to me. So I think that made it more than a movie. It was a constant topic of discussion at school from that point going forward. So you just couldn't escape it. I mean, not every kid was interested in Star Wars. There were a lot of kids that hadn't seen it or hated it. It just wasn't their thing. You know, a lot of kids are into sports or. <clears throat> Whatever, whatever interests. Speaking of the, the merchandise and things like that, did you have a desire to take the movie home with you now that the opportunities were there? Well, not initially, but, yeah. but gradually, uh, you know, I got into the toys. Remember, the thing with the toys is the, the figures weren't, <laughs> weren't available right away. You know, there, most movies don't have tie-in merchandise, so I just don't think they really gave that a whole lot of thought. So by the time it became a phenomenon, the opportunity to, to capitalize on that, I think it was just, just too late to get the toys out so soon. Certainly, the the following Christmas, Christmas '78, as was a, uh, you know, that was a lot. That was good. That was a good Christmas. That was a good Christmas for for many. <laughs> uh, so, was there any one scene or, or moment that made a significant impact from that first viewing? Um, 
Well, there were several. That's hard to answer because there's you know, the movie, and it seems like an embarrassment of riches. I mean, it's, there's so many things going on, so many uh, great characters. You can uh, latch on to, you know, which one's your favorite. You can have several favorites and uh, so many exciting scenes, and uh, the action and excitement was uh, done at a level I had never seen before. Um, but I think the answer to your question would be the jump to light speed. That was probably the single most exciting moment in the movie. And the first time I had ever experienced any kind of uh, crowd interaction, almost like a, like a ball game or a live event where you have applause and cheering and hollering. And uh, that was uh, <laughs> pretty bizarre to experience, but exciting at the same time. We're losing it at Both trap yourselves in. I'm going to make a jump to light speed. <laughs> I can't say if movies prior were like that, um, but certainly for my generation, that was the uh, the star- starting point for that that type of uh, viewing experience. And it didn't let up from that moment. There are several moments in the movie set, and certainly in the second half, where that uh, generates a lot of excitement. Yes. Uh, so, how many times did you end up seeing the original movie when it was in its long theatrical run? I think only twice. Uh, like I said before, the idea of seeing a movie multiple times just was not a thing. And I uh, think I was probably afraid to ask to see something twice. I don't know. I wasn't one of these kids that saw it, you know, a dozen times or 20 times or 100 times, as people have, have claimed. Uh, you know, there were a lot of kids at school who would often brag about how many times they've seen it. And, you know, a lot of times I would just roll my eyes like, oh, come on, you're, that's, that's not, that can't be true. But uh, actually, I do think it was probably true. Uh, <laughs> in principle, I think people derive so much enjoyment out of watching it. You just never, never got tired of it. Um, but, but it became a kind of a game to see if who could hook it out outwatch it from their friends. So I do think there was probably some exaggeration in there. The second time, I don't know if you want to count that as the original run. It would have been the following summer. As we've learned it in the bigger cities, it never ended. So technically it's still first, first run. <laughs> yeah, I'd say let's count it. Now, the funny thing is I've had this conversation before with my, my parents and, and my mother believes that the second viewing was my first viewing. <laughs> and, but she didn't see the movie with me. She's never seen the movie with me. So I, I don't know. I think it's tied to this, this idea of being afraid to ask to see it a second time. Because the second viewing was not in the same theater. This was, we lived elsewhere. When, when that conversation happened, I knew the timeline didn't quite make sense. We were in Northern California by the time I saw it this, the, that second time. And that would have been in Mont- Monterey, California, at the uh, Regency Theater in Monterey. We, we, parents were military. We were, they were at Fort, stationed at Fort Ord, but most of the time we went to the movies in Monterey or Carmel or Salinas. Only a couple times I saw a movie on the, on the, the post. Uh, this may be a similar answer to the city center question, but when you were up in Northern California, was there anything that, that struck you as different about those theaters compared to the ones in Southern California? Well, the theater in Monterey was, was smaller. <laughs> and uh, I've since learned that it, w- it would not have been shown in the same, same format as, as the earlier one. But I, I, I was not tuned into that. You know, whenever I saw movies that were, for instance, if they were in Dolby or 70 millimeter, that, that wasn't something I sought out. And at that point in time, I wasn't uh, knowledgeable about those things at that point in my life. Um, and if, 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 if a presentation was good, I would have just associated it as, as th- it's just that movie. You know, and a movie like Star Wars, because of all the, all the uh, you know, sound effects that were created for it, and uh, it's got pretty much wall-to-wall music, that, that's going to have a certain audio characteristic compared to a, a Talking Heads movie, an adult drama. So I would never have associated any kind of technical presentation issue with, with those kinds of differences. Yeah, so uh, moving on to the other films in the trilogy, 
Do you remember much about the build-up to The Empire Strikes Back and when you first saw that? Uh, yes, but <laughs> that was a, a very excruciating wait, because by that point I was uh, fully immersed in uh, Star Wars fandom. <laughs> in 1979, we moved to Germany. Um, so I was, I was in Germany when Empire was released, so I did not get to see it for many months, which was uh, <laughs> quite painful. Um, so by the time I saw it, I had already read the novel, had the comic books, had the soundtrack album, had some of the toys. So it was a very odd experience because I had already sort of seen it in my head <laughs> multiple times. And right. when I saw it, it was, it was nothing like what I thought it would be, even though I already knew the story. Um, but so 1979, you know, while, while Empire was in production, that's that whole year I was in Germany. So there was the only way to, to hear about it was, you know, magazine coverage. And uh, I was in the Star Wars fan club at that point. You know, the Bantha Tracks newsletters, which I think were quarterly back then. Um, So any little nugget of information was uh, exciting to to, to get. It's uh, kind of odd to think back to how how it all trickled out to us at a much slower pace than than now. We take it all for granted, having so much information at our our disposal. Um, But that was normal, so it it didn't seem out of place. It just, just, looking back, it seemed seemed slow. But I had... uh, you know, the soundtrack album to Star Wars and the uh, abridged version of the movie, the, the story of Star Wars album. You know, the movie cut down to al- an album's length with a little bit of narration thrown in. In fact, I heard that album more times than I saw the movie. Because during that time I was in Germany, the original movie was not shown on at any military theaters. They just, just weren't showing it. So I couldn't see the movie during that period of time. So 78 was the last time I saw it. I didn't see it again until 81, the original movie. And then finally uh, came back to the States in the fall of 80. And then uh, the first order of business was finally getting to see Empire. <laughs> okay, so you had to come back stateside to actually get to see it. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> it, it did play at the military theaters over there, but not until right around the time I was coming home. I was excited to have an opportunity to come home, but I was, at the same time I was afraid I was going to miss seeing the movie. I didn't know it would still be playing in the States by the time I got back, but it was. To answer your question, I did finally see Empire in, a, in October of 80. The first viewing of that would have, was at the um, Westminster Mall in uh, the UA, UA Twin outside the mall in uh, Westminster, California, Orange County. I was obviously excited to, to finally see it. Um, but like I said, I had already seen it in my head thanks to reading the book multiple times and having the comic book and listening to the music and so forth. But I saw it because I saw it so many months later. It was not a full house like it would have been had I seen it on opening weekend. So it really didn't have any audience. I don't want to say participation, but uh, no audience involvement uh, like I was able to experience with the original movie and with uh, Jedi. There's kind of an element of disappointment to that. I didn't care at the time. I was just thrilled I was seeing it. But thinking back, uh, that that experience wasn't as exciting as, as the other films. So essentially having seen the movie in your head before seeing it, when you came across the big Darth Vader reveal, what were your takes on it when you first read it compared to when you finally saw it on screen? Um, I, the first time, well, I had to read it again to confirm that I read what I thought I just read, but I, I think back then I, I uh, interpreted it as uh, Vader's lying. He's just, he's, just, he's, he's just trying to trick Luke. He's just lying to him. So I didn't take that seriously. However, seeing the movie... I still felt that way, I think, when, when the line was said. But after seeing the movie multiple times in its uh, 81 and 82 re-releases prior to Jedi, seeing it a, a several times, I think 
I was of the opinion that he was telling the truth. And the giveaway there, I think, is the uh, that brief moment on the Falcon right before the jump to light speed, where you know they have that little moment, and I think the quick dissolves uh, for the for the shot transitions. I think is the giveaway that so- something's going on there with the uh, you know the force or whatever. I think that that the way that scene was cut was telegraphed uh, that he was telling the truth. But of course, we had to wait to find out. So yeah, in in terms of that time in between Empire and Jedi, were you still moving around a lot with your parents' military service? Yes, it's, uh, we still moved a lot, and uh, not only did we move a lot, I, I hopped around from uh, relative to relative as well. That's that's a complicated story. Throughout the '80s, the early '80s, I lived in the Mojave Desert, and uh, uh, the cool thing is we lived uh, we had several military bases within either 30, you know, half an hour or an hour's drive of us. So I, I was able to see those movies multiple times, both in the, the regular town, the regular commercial theaters, but also on the military theater circuit, which was uh, pretty cool because they showed movies that were on a completely different distribution cycle than the rest of the country. So you got to see things at, 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 at odd times when it wasn't available elsewhere. <laughs> Kind of like the home video window where it might take five or six or seven months to play. And then most military theaters only play a movie for a, a one or two or maybe if it was popular, but one or two or three days only. And then that print was shipped off to the next nearest base. Um, so you couldn't, if you wanted to see something, you know, you had to get on it the day it was there. You only had a day or two to, to see it. Um, but the schedules were printed, you know, a week or two in advance. So you had a, like a week, maybe two weeks, one or two weeks worth of the schedule. You knew what they were. Were there a lot of other kids your age that you'd go to the movies with while you were on the base? Uh, yeah, yeah, I tended to uh, hang with 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 kids with similar interests, either either the Star Wars, uh, you know, movies and the sci-fi fantasy stuff that I liked, and or the sports, one or the other, or both. Some kids only liked one or the other. Some like me, I was I was into both of those things. So uh, I, oftentimes I would go see the movie with with a friend or a group of friends, but I probably saw it just as many times by myself. Getting closer to the release date for Jedi, was the hype just increasing exponentially for you? Yeah, I think the wait for Jedi was even harder than the wait for Empire, because my interest had not uh, waned. I mean, I was not starting to get interested in other things, but uh, yeah, it was a pretty excruciating wait. And the thing is, we lived in a we lived in a town where there was only one theater. It was a two-screen theater, and then plus the the nearby military uh, bases. Um, but but my town did not open the movie <laughs> on on uh, the 25th of May. And which town was this? Uh, that would be Barstow, middle of the Mojave Desert, halfway between LA and Las Vegas. So we we had to drive. The next nearest town where it was playing would have been Victorville, 
They had a uh, seven-screen theater, which seemed <laughs> unheard of at the time. Okay, and do you remember which theater that was? Yeah, it was just called The Movies, Movies <laughs> 7. That's where we would have to go if you wanted to see movies on opening weekend. Okay, so that's where you saw Jedi when it opened. For the first time, that's where I saw it. How did you feel about the movie, you know, having seen it at last, and, and knowing that it could theoretically be it for Star Wars on the big screen? Um, there's uh, multiple answers to that. I think at that time, I did, I did like it a lot. I, I, uh, I think initially, I probably loved it. Um, I wasn't one of these people that, that hated it because, because of the Ewoks or anything. I didn't care. I think the, the Ewoks are the, the least of the movie's problems. Um, most of the action sequences were exciting for, you know, a 14-year-old at the time. And, and uh, from an action standpoint, I thought it was great. From a dramatic standpoint, I thought it was pretty weak. Um, overall, I, I liked it. I saw it multiple times. I saw it more times than the other ones, first run. But gradually over time, once you could sort of distance yourself from the uh, pandemonium of seeing it when it was brand new, and certainly once they were all available on video and you could just kind of watch them on your own schedule and have your own double and triple features and you can kind of step back. At that point, it became very obvious that it's, it's not anywhere near as good as the, the first two. But overall, I'm not one of these people that has a very strong opinion of, of, of hating it. I think it's very good. It just, I think it's still pretty good. It just has the unfortunate distinction of following two very, very excellent movies. Yeah, and from what I gather, Jedi opened at the, the Cynodome, which is a pretty important place in terms of movie-going history in Orange County, is that right? I think so. I think people who are um, old enough to remember the Cynodome and went there to see movies, I think most people had a favorable uh, impression of the place. I mean, they always seemed to play the, the top films, and always uh, the company that owned it, Sayufi, um, always seemed to stay. You know, they kept pace with the, the technology. So they were always able to play movies in whatever the top formats were at the time. So back in the 70s and 80s, I mean, that would be, you know, most of the big event movies were at least in Dolby, but often in uh, 70 millimeter as well. So that's, except for some 70 millimeter releases were only, uh, they only made a, a print or two. Um, but in most cases, if they made at least a, a dozen or more, usually uh, the Synodome would get one. So that was the that was that, and along with the big Newport in uh, Newport Beach, those were the destination theaters. I think in Orange County during that era. By the time I was driving and and able to <laughs> be the one making the choice as to where I saw movies, I would I would make extra effort to try to go see uh, these things at the Cynodome whenever possible. But now it was a uh, in the '80s. It was it was mostly a sixplex. Eventually, it expanded to an eight. I mean, it started as a two, two to four to six to eight, and then I think it ended up as 11. So they were constantly expanding it every few years, but thankfully they kept building around it instead of dividing up the, the auditorium. So the two largest, most desirable auditoriums uh, were kept intact. I mean, you, you always hoped that when you went, that's, that's where the, the movie you wanted to see was, was playing. Sometimes it, it wasn't just because there were too many big movies out at the same time. So I would always try to figure out in advance if, if it was on one of those screens. If it wasn't, then maybe I would uh, make alternate plans. And so you saw Return of the Jedi there? Yeah, the, I had uh, some relatives who lived not far from there, and I would often go to visit for a few days or during holiday time, Christmas break or Thanksgiving break, and we would almost always go to the movies. Um, so on one of those visits, a couple of those visits, I saw Empire there, and then also uh, one of the times uh, Jedi. Um, and by the time Jedi was out, I was aware of what, what you know, Dolby was and, and, and 70 millimeter and this idea that, that uh, not all movie theaters are created equal and not all 
presentations are created equal. So that was very exciting to see this because I'd already seen it. So you, you can't help but notice and appreciate the differences in the quality if you see it in that manner. And the Cynodome was a pretty large, well, the, the, the two bigger houses. Um, I don't remember the seat count, I mean, not quite a thousand, but, but somewhere eight or nine hundred. And so that was pretty massive compared to what we had at, in uh, Barstow or Victorville or any of the military theaters. When Jedi was re-released in 1985, I saw it at um, uh, a place called Town Center, which was an Edwards theater. Edwards was a – this won't mean anything to people not from Southern California because they won't know what these, these they, who these chains were in these theaters. But, um, you know, I don't know if it was true, but at least in the – even into the early 80s, I think there were sections of Orange County that couldn't have – or that did not have cable television because, uh, because Edwards uh, <laughs> fought it. This was back when uh, the film industry and the TV industries were pretty much at odds with one another. The home video industry was still pretty much in its in- infancy. So I don't think they realized um, that they kind of helped one another. <laughs> you know, I mean, video really kind of saved the, the film side of things, created additional revenue streams, uh, eventually created the uh, – exposed the need to uh, preserve and uh, restore things and uh, keep uh, a company's assets in order so they can continue to make money <laughs> over time. Um, but the industries were at odds with one another back then and uh, Edwards was pretty much the dominant chain in Orange County. I mean there were other chains. <laughs> Sayufi had the Cynodome and uh, there were some UA theaters and man theaters um, but Edwards was the big one and I just remember one of my relatives uh, lived in Costa Mesa uh, in, the, in, the, in the 80s and they, they didn't have cable TV and that's the story they told me. But I, was, I was a little kid so dumb enough to believe it. I don't, I don't know if it's true or not but it, it, it speaks to the, the contentiousness between the, the film side and the TV side of, of the business. Uh, in in Costa Mesa, they had uh, you know South Coast Plaza is a pretty famous, uh, popular shopping mall still there. Um, the theaters aren't aren't though, but um, Town Center was was near there. And then uh, my personal favorite of of all the Orange County theaters was Edwards South Coast Plaza. Even more than I liked it more than the Cynodome and even Big Newport. As great as those places were, I, I really liked South Coast Plaza. Um, but never saw any Star Wars movies there. In fact, uh, saw saw Lady Hawk there. A great seventy millimeter presentation of Lady Hawk, which had. <laughs> I always mention this because it's, uh, it's it stands out as a as a real vivid memory, and uh, <clears throat> for a long time I questioned whether it actually happened. It was there was a, one of the trailers during that was for the Goonies, and it was uh, it was a, a teaser, not not a not a full release trailer. We didn't have any footage from the movie. It was just a, the the title card for uh, it one one after another various Spielberg and Richard Donner movies, and then a letter would drop out, and collectively it spelled the Goonies. And it just, it's recently turned up on YouTube, uh, but for years I would t- I would talk to people about it. Nobody, it seemed like nobody ever saw this thing. So I started to question whether I was just pretending to, to have seen it. But it just, I, it was really cool because it was a movie I wanted to see. And I, you know, was, I liked all those Spielberg and Donner movies. And I just, because it was a 70 millimeter presentation, the music, because when, when each uh, title card was on screen, there was, you know, three, four seconds of music from, from that particular movie. And, you know, the six track Dolby was just so crystal clear and uh, just, sounded so good. It was just very exciting. Um, Who could 
Yeah, it was a trip back, uh, you know, I went to, as often as I could, uh, to see 70 millimeter presentations, um, just because they were, <laughs> they were just so much better. I mean, even if the movies weren't any good, which you didn't know that in advance, but it just made even mediocre movies enjoyable, at least during the time you're watching it, because back then, this is pre, pre-digital sound, pre, uh, you know, period of time where most theaters had decent sound, and so they just stood out, and, and you have these, these trailers that sound just as good as the feature that's about to follow, and, and, and the crazy part of it is most of those trailers were, were advertising movies that were not going to get released in 70 millimeter. So it was a trip seeing uh, just stuff that shouldn't sound as good as it, it did. Yeah, it's quite an advertising tactic. For the big Newport, did you see any of the Star Wars films there or was that uh, another place you just happened to frequent for bigger presentations? Most of my visits to Newport were later. Um, I saw the... Uh, Special edition re-releases there. Um, I saw those multiple times. That was there. Star Wars and Empire, not Jedi. But I saw a lot, lots of movies in the 80s and 90s there. That was actually a, a probably a better theater than the Cynodome. If 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 you're talking about the main, the original, the original house, there was a, well, depending on the the year, there was a second screen off to the side, and then eventually a third screen on the opposite side, and then <laughs> eventually some stadium plexes next to it. The original auditorium was was massive. I mean, I think it probably had the biggest screen in uh, Southern California there. And it was uh, really ornate and it had a little limo circle out front. You know, you, if you went there opening night to see an event movie, I mean, the line just was, because it had over a thousand seats, the line just seemed to <laughs> go for a mile. Um, so a lot of memorable uh, visits there. But that's probably noteworthy because it played the original movie, not on opening day. They got it, you know, in the summer when it, when it started expanding to additional venues throughout the region. But um, but they ended up having uh, one of the, the few 70s as well and uh, played it for over a year. So it was 50-something weeks. I, yeah. can, <laughs> I don't have those numbers uh, memorized, uh, despite what people think. But uh, it was 50-something right around a year. So I, I, that would have been the place to see it. And I have friends uh, who, who saw it there, and uh, my, my wife says that's where she saw it as well. So I'm kind of envious of that. <laughs> and uh, the, the big Newport's still standing and operating? I think so, but it's been, been renovated yeah. to the point where it uh, bears little resemblance to its original state. Going back to the Synodome, that was, that was demolished, um, well, quite a while now. I mean, uh, another theater was built uh, a short ways away from that. In the 90s, you know, the trend was to build theaters with stadium seating and digital sound and so forth. So uh, the older theaters were, uh, you know, left to rot. Yeah, it's a, a sad but common truth. Yeah, the Cynodome is uh, it's, it's a bummer because it's, uh, it's not far from Anaheim Stadium. You know, Angel Stadium. Uh, so anytime I go to a game, I drive past it, and you see it's, it's just a bunch of condos there. So it's, uh, you know, a bummer to, to think about what was there. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd like to talk about your interest in film history and your work on the subject. So when did that interest form, and when did you get your start? I think the the clues were there from, from early on, but I, I didn't pick up on them until lately as far as uh, my interests and how they uh, pertain to um 
some of the work that I do. The best I can explain that would be it, it goes back to, to, to Star Wars. <laughs> so many things do. Um, uh, like so many from my generation, I, I was inspired by Star Wars to want to work in the movie industry. But it wasn't just Star Wars. I mean, it was other other movies, mostly the late 1970s, early 80s. That was the period of time where I was, um, you know, the last couple of years of elementary school and going into junior high and then high school. So lots of things <clears throat> made a big impression on me and movies and sports and things at that age. Other things later on. But um you know, it wasn't just Star Wars, but mo- mostly it was the Lucas and Spielberg stuff from that era. But I, I had no friends or relatives in the movie business, um, <laughs> which uh, would have come in handy. You know, so I, so instead I chose to major in film in college, which is probably the next best thing a person can do. Um, not that that's a guarantee of anything. And looking back, it's probably not the smartest uh, course of study. <laughs> but uh, that's not a knock on, on film as, as, a, as, a, as a major. I just think... Uh, you know, one can learn about film on their own. Just be a, a, a be a student of, of film and see a lot of movies, and you can you can go out and make movies on your own. I mean, it's better to learn other things that way. You have something to make movies about. So, but I hadn't actually intended to go to college. I mean, when I was in high school, I think the plan was really I was just going to go in the military, like so many others in my family. And that was just such a big part of growing up that I didn't give that a lot of thought. But <laughs> I knew deep down I, I didn't really want to. I think being in that environment, I, I kind of, in a way, this kind of rubs people the wrong way, but it's, it's not like I'm a draft dodger. There is no, we're not, we're not, we don't live in a society where you're required to serve. So um, at this point in time, um, I felt like I kind of already was in the service, so to speak, because I was in that environment. Um, so I, I really wanted to go to college. You know, they, they pushed, you can go to college on the GI Bill later. Um, but I, I really wanted, if I was going to go to college, I wanted to go where most of the students were the same age as me. I just felt like I wanted to go at that point in time, give it a shot and see, see how it turns out. So I ended up going to Long Beach State, which uh, as far as film is concerned, that's not quite USC or NYU. Um, but it is famous for being where Spielberg attended and dropped out and uh, you know was famously informed he was no good and had no future. So we know how that turned out. <laughs> you know, while I was in college, I made a handful of Super 8 and 16 millimeter films and some video-based stuff. Following graduation, I, I worked on some low-budget productions, um, mostly junk nobody's heard of, um, but it was a good experience. Um, but, you know, if you want to do that as a career, you have to be in a union pretty much if you, if you want to work on the, the big big productions. So that takes a while to, to get into. Um, I flirted with being a cinematographer and did some camera assisting while working toward gaining the eligibility to join the union. Um, but that was a real frustrating period, you know, because the work is sporadic and freelance in nature. Um, and it was at this time I was offered a position with a magazine. Um, that magazine was Widescreen Review, which was a magazine I had w- w- I read because I was into, you know, buying and collecting laser discs at the time. This was before DVD, so that was the laser disc was the top consumer format. Um, and and <laughs> the supplemental features on laser discs, I think in a way, is the best film school you can have. Just listen to those the commentary tracks and watch the documentaries, and uh, um, you can't go wrong with those. But um, so anyway, I, I got this job with the magazine, and um, it was not intended to be a career. It's meant to be part time to to fill in the the gaps where I wasn't working on 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 in production. But I enjoyed that experience, and uh, they had tasked me to work on a lot of data oriented projects and historical research and maintaining databases and. Um, I, I think with that experience, it became pretty clear that historical research is the thing I enjoy the most. I, I wonder if the magazine wasn't uh, film-based, if I would have enjoyed it as much. It's, there, there's no way to know that, but I think combining those two subjects, 
I think crystallized for me. That's that's what I enjoy doing. Um, so that led to some opportunities to to, to do research on Star Wars. And uh, if if Star Wars hadn't been a, a a personal favorite, I also don't know that I would have um, spent as much time as I have on it. So and then I should also mention that during college and and the few years after, I also worked in some movie theaters and three different theaters, and then I've uh, worked in a couple different video stores. So I think I possess kind of a maybe a unique perspective in that I've worked in production, exhibition, home video, and as a member of the media. Collectively, that's given me a, a pretty good perspective because I can see the industry from different vantage points and kind of see how all the, all the parts kind of come together. And I'd like to think that that, that has, has helped because, you know, some people work one corner of their industry their whole career, and uh, they could be the best that there is at that and be extremely good but um, you know you're not going to have a, a package of skills or, a, or a, a lot of experience if you don't do a variety of things so i think that's a good thing but the, the funny thing is the clues were there from the start because when i think back of the time i was in college this was late 80s very early 90s i didn't have a computer as most most of the people i knew didn't or they might have had a word processor but um you know, computers weren't as uh, they weren't as prominent in our lives um, as they are today. So there was a computer lab at the school, and um, there was always a wait because there were only so many <laughs> computers and many more students. And I, I remember the microfilm collection was on the same floor as as the computer lab, and I would spend my time waiting, uh, looking at microfilm just um, to pass the time, wait waiting for my turn to, you know, wait for a computer slot to open up. And uh, that's when I <laughs> would start looking at old movie ads. And, uh, but not keeping track of it. I was just passing time. I just enjoyed looking at it. It seemed like time travel. You know, I would look at the, the, the headlines and sports stories, but a lot of movie ads. Okay, I'd say that's a, a pretty good origin story in terms of what I came to know you for. So what led you to start going down that trail of historical research on Star Wars? Well, like I said, I really enjoyed uh, doing the kind of work that I was doing at the magazine. And this was around the time where the Internet was really gaining traction, which was unfortunate for the magazine business, but, but that's a separate matter. Um, a lot of the stuff that interests me, both in general, but also in terms of Star Wars and its exhibition history, the, a lot of the information was not online. Or the place where you would get information were, weren't really resources, but rather uh, like message rooms, you know, chat rooms, forums, where, where it was more of conversation-based. And when you, when you get into that kind of situation, you, no matter the subject, you, you always end up, often end up with just a mass of conflicting information because everybody's trying to you know, give their opinion and everyone has different memories of things and you know, different personality quirks, which uh, play a role in, in, the, in the, how the conversations play out. So there, it can be very frustrating because you, you often don't know what the truth is on something. So this, because I was with the magazine and um, I had opportunities to write both just personal curiosities, but also things that would make it into the magazine. I, I thought I would try to do some, answer some questions that had always bugged me, things that I, I, I didn't know the answer to. And I, I don't think most fans necessarily knew or necessarily agreed on. And uh, the, the first thing I remember addressing, and this was in the late 1990s, and it was when the episode for A New Hope subtitle was added to Star Wars. I think today, if you ask that question, I think, I think most people probably know the answer. I think there's, there's less contentiousness if you <laughs> disagree with somebody. Um, but back then, you got a variety of answers if, if, you, if you posed that question. So I tried try to get to the bottom of that. So, you know, over the years, being a fan of Star Wars and film in general, you know, I've collected a lot of books, a lot of magazines, tend to not throw things away. And you go through these things and you, you, you get a, ver a variety of answers on things. And one of the Lucasfilm archive books, it was not the one that came out just a few years ago. It was one many years ago. 
the art book on the Lucasfilm archives. That book claims that subtitle was added in 1978 when the movie was first re-released. I, I knew that could not be correct. These are the people that made the movie. <laughs> so if you can't trust them, what, where are you going to go from there? So, um, you know, the, the first reference, I think, was in the Art of Star Wars book, which was published in 1979 while Empire was in production. You know, that book uh, included the, a published version of the screenplay for the, for the first movie. And they, even though it wouldn't appear on production copies while they were making the movie, but for, in, in book form, they added a cover page, which, which had that episode four title. And that book was published in late 1979, by which time Empire was finished, was in post-production. I think by then they had sorted out the numbering scheme and how they were going to go forward with the numbering. That's where it first appeared. And that 1979 um, is when I lived in Germany. So I didn't see the movie during that re-release. Um, but for many years, I just assumed that, that that was when they added it because that's the, the, the year the book was out. And a lot of people will still insist that it was changed in that thing. But um, if, you, if you dig deeper, you'll see that when Empire was out, you know, the press coverage, uh, when the movie was about to come out, they you know, had like press junkets and things for the, for the screenings, for the, for the critics. And I think that's when uh, you know, Kurtz and Kirshner and Lucas, they all kind of explained the, 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 the grand plan. And so a lot of the film reviews of Empire explained that you know, Empire was going to be numbered number five and that eventually the next time Star Wars, the original movie, was re-released, that's when they'll, they'll revise it. And that's why I think we've all sort of settled upon 1981 as the, as the answer to the question. And that, that little bit appeared in a, it was for a piece I was doing on uh, the history of large format film, like 70 millimeter stuff. This was late 90s. And um, it was more like a little sidebar notation related to Star Wars. It wasn't, the article wasn't really about that detail, but there was a place in the article where I could justify putting it. And then from there, uh, what I wanted to do was figure out where, <laughs> you know, the, the myth, or the, the legend of the movie was that it didn't open in very many places. Um, so if you lived in a remote part of the country or even some big cities, you, you know, the issue is whether, how, how long did it take before you had an opportunity to see the movie? So I wanted to kind of explore that. You know, the conversation always went something like, oh, Star Wars wasn't popular at first. It only played in a few theaters because nobody wanted to play it. And so there was this desire to try to really start from scratch and really see if that was true or not, and then determine where, where did it play. Because you, especially this, as, as the internet, and this was kind of before Facebook and social media, but certainly the internet forums were, were alive and well then, there was so much chatter on this, and people have this memory of where they see it, and I think a lot of it is a false memory, um, because nobody has a chronology available to them to verify any of this information. So the concept of a chronology is going to become increasingly important as we get to your later work, but when was this that you were first trying to get the original release figured out? This, this was around, I think, maybe 2002, which, uh, except for Attack of the Clones being made, that was a fairly quiet year, I think, for Star Wars, for like the original trilogy, because that wasn't the big anniversary year, and the, the originals had not yet come out on DVD. I don't, they weren't announced, so there, I had a tough time convincing my boss to run a story on such a, uh, a subject that would, might have limited appeal beyond fans of the movie. So I remember uh, pitching that idea to the uh, Star Wars fan club magazine. At the Insider, and uh, I remember they expressed some interest. They, they thought it was an interesting idea, but they, as, as we explored it more, they got tripped up when uh, started talking about the dreaded L word. You know, the lists, lists of data. 
I don't know why people are so afraid of this stuff. The, uh, and then when you see a list, it's it's almost a punishment to, to create lists of data because I think it's an effective way to convey information and it's easy to read, easy to reference. Um, but I think people have this weird sense that no work went into it. Like it just sort of, ex- it just, it just, exists like this or, or that it was existed somewhere else and it was just copied and pasted into some some new article so it's very kind of frustrating that uh, people don't stop and realize this stuff does not create itself so they they it ended up not running there um so we, we just couldn't make it happen but it was something i still wanted to do just to satisfy my own personal curiosity so i just kept working on it little by little when i had time not worrying so much where, if or where it would ever appear. Um, I knew eventually the, those movies would probably come out on DVD. Maybe we could run something in. So <clears throat> what I did to start is I spent a day at the Academy's, uh, the Margaret Herrick Library, which uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Yeah, I know, uh, you know, Disneyland is known as, uh, what is it, the happiest place on earth? I, I think that's a lie. I think the happiest place on earth for me is the, the Herrick Library. Uh, um, if you're into film history, that's you've got to go there on a regular basis. Um I always uh, think of that great uh, Twilight Zone episode of Burgess Meredith where he, uh, you know, he loves to read and he <laughs> survives the, what, the earthquake or whatever happened. And, uh, you know, he's got all this time to read his, his, his books with no interruptions. I always think, <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be great to just get locked in this place? And, <laughs> you know, they, they hide in the bathroom and uh, be there all night long and then have this uh, crazy, terrible thought that, oh, my God, the electricity is t- turned off. I can't, I can't see anything. But... Um, Books! Books! All the books I'll need! All the books! All the books I'll ever want! Shelley, Shakespeare, Shaw! All the books I want! All the books! Ah. Uh, yeah, it's a great place. So, so I went there, pulled the clipping files. This is, this is kind of how you, I think a good approach to any kind of work is forget what's in front of you. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the time of the event and see see how it was covered and start start from there. Because if you start too soon, you're, you may be already heading down the wrong path. So I wanted to see how Variety and Hollywood Reporter covered this when it was brand new. Um, and, and I got some, some good information, but I think in the end I had more questions than answers. So I thought, why don't I just call Fox? And uh, so I, <laughs> I called Fox. And uh, yeah, they uh, maybe the guy was having a bad day, but I, I remember him screaming at me, telling me to not not to waste his time trying to solve yesterday's problems. <laughs> yeah, they they didn't want to help. Well, I shouldn't say they. The the the, the person I I spoke to just just wanted no part of this. So I'm like, okay, whatever. And uh, called back a little later, not you know, I don't know a few weeks later or something, hoping I would get somebody different. <laughs> And uh, the the next time I called them, they they were a little more sympathetic. I got a, a better <laughs> person on the line, but they insisted that they didn't have that information. That Lucasfilm would have it, so to call them, and they actually put me in touch with the person. Um, so I called them, getting all excited. Oh, well, I'm making progress here. But uh, they ended up saying the same thing. We don't have that information. Foxwood, call them. I hate to say it, but it looks like the system you're searching for doesn't exist. Impossible. Perhaps the archives are incomplete. If an item does not appear in our records, it does not exist. So it was a bunch of back and forth, and I, and I gave up because they either didn't have it. You know, maybe this stuff is, is filed away. It's probably not even on site anymore. And back then, it, they probably weren't using computerized record keeping, at least not the type today. So it's not like it's just going to be in a database. You know, I think once keeping the records of, of where these things played, I think is really, the, from a studio's perspective, the purpose of that is so they can know where, where, from whom to collect the rent on the print. Once they've got the money, there's no, no need for the, the documents. So it probably, I don't know if they were destroyed, but they're probably filed away 
somewhere. Anyway, a lot of effort would be required to do that. So I just decided, why don't I just research this myself and um, look up the, look up the newspaper ads and just go city by city and, and, and see if it can be put together like a puzzle. Um, now, keep in mind, this is, this is early 2000s. Most newspapers had not been digitized. So this is a matter of, you know, looking them up on microfilm. But most, most libraries don't just have a whole, whole country's worth of papers. I mean, the Library of Congress is, is pretty well stocked, but I didn't live in Washington, D.C. So, you know, it was a combination of some travel and some calls and asking people to look things up on my behalf. It was just a matter of, of getting access to the, the materials. Um, also, during this period, the early 2000s, I used to travel every summer to go to baseball games, my other interest. I wanted to visit all the ballparks, <laughs> and uh, this was all done by car. Um, so I tried to weave in some, some, some library visits. It was kind of hard to do. It was a very tight schedule. Um, but I did some, some, some research on those trips um, where possible. So it, it took, I don't know, it took six, several months to piece it together. But eventually, I was able to <clears throat> determine how many there were on opening day and also solve the mystery of why some sources have multiple days as the opening day. As a fan, I had a lot of books on the film, a lot of magazine articles, and I noticed a lot of discrepancies between the facts as far as well, how many feeders did it open in. You know, if you go through all these old books and articles, you see all kinds of numbers. You know, 32 is the most common number, which is technically correct for the opening day, but it doesn't address the fact that feeders were given the option to pick the day they wanted to open it, whether it was a Wednesday or a Friday, or in, in case one theater, a Thursday. So the real number ended up being 43, spread out over Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So that explains that. that I discovered that that explains that discrepancy. So yeah. So with that question answered, how did your research expand and evolve from there? That research kind of formed the basis for what has continued to be research I've tried to um, create additional uh, articles and uh, hopefully someday a book, but uh, that initial research was was the the starting point for uh, creating a, a variety of, of articles that kind of uh, keep topping the one before it, taking a different approach, focusing on something different or, or you know, adding to it. You know, the, the more, most recent thing I've done on, on the original film was uh, an attempt to have the entire first run release documented, which sounds pretty nutty, but if it were any other movie, it might be. But I think because the release was so spread out, I think it's, it's, it's pretty interesting to see it when, it's, when it's in front of you on paper how, how spread out it was, because I think a lot of people just assume they, they, everybody saw it in May, and that's simply not true. Right, and so we're uh, now approaching your most recent article on the original Star Wars that you published on the Digital Bits, but before we dive into that, how did you get involved with the site? I joined the Digital Bits in uh, 2013, by which time I was, I was not working at the, at the, I didn't have the magazine job anymore. Um, the, the guy who runs the Digital Bits, uh, it's Bill Hunt, um, he's been running that since pretty much DVD uh, was, was a new format back in the late 90s. And because of the magazine job, I, I've known him that whole time just because we would uh, you know, see each other at various industry events and the media, the media events. And I've read his site as well. So uh, he asked me to join uh, in 2013. And um, so I did. And uh, it's, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's a good experience. I mean, I've, I've got a lot of flexibility to do the articles that I want, which is, um, you know, not everybody has that, that luxury. I mean, I get to pick the assignments. So um, that's good. Yeah, that's great. So your column is called History, Legacy, and Showmanship. What's the general premise? The column that I uh, came up with for the bits is uh, primarily uh, anniversary retrospectives. Uh, I mean, 
I don't know if that's a good idea or not. I mean, it, I mean, if somebody wanted to write an article on a movie, you can you don't really need an excuse to do it. But it seems like there's a, a lot of uh, uh, nostalgia out there when uh, seems like a, seems like just a, <laughs> an easy, easy uh, or a good approach to take on on some of these these films. You know, sometimes I, I will put articles together about films that are personal favorites. Other times it's something that is not a favorite, but I know it, it has a lot of uh, fans or uh, has some sort of a significance historically or technologically. So I try to I try to be a little broad in, in the, the films that get covered. I'm, I'm not sure I've succeeded in that area, but because I can only do so many of these because they unfortunately they take they take a long time to put together. So I can't I can't crank them out, you know, weekly. I, I would love to, but, uh, you know. If I do a dozen of these a year, that's 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 a good year, because um, they do take a while to, to to put together. You know, I realize that exhibition and distribution is probably the least covered aspect of the movie business, and when it is, it's usually not uh, all that detailed, or as I've discovered, it's not always that accurate. So, yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, you know, if I can do my part and try to <laughs> try to make things a little better than they are. Yeah, they're just fantastic, and the ones you've done on the Star Wars trilogy are a huge resource for me and the podcast. So as a case study, I wanted to focus on your epic retrospective for the original movie that you titled A Force to be Reckoned With that was initially published in December of 2015, around the time that The Force Awakens was released, and then updated in 2017 for the 40th anniversary. What was the goal? So eventually it got to the point where I wanted to create a, a, a chronology because it had to be a chronology because the release was so spread out over, you know, every week it would, it would open somewhere else. So you couldn't just have an alphabetical list of where it played without also identifying the date. So to me, it makes sense to just list them chronologically. Yeah. And when you see this thing in its current state, it's just unbelievable. Uh, you've got a chronological listing of first-run engagements in the U.S. and Canada with literally hundreds of theaters and dates. What were your best sources, and what was the most challenging aspect of putting it together? Um, there's a couple. Uh, the, the biggest um, challenge is, is getting access to the, to the source material, because um, most newspapers, which back then the newspapers were the primary form of advertising. So I think except for some very tiny towns that might not have had a paper, or didn't have a daily paper, that, that you get into some issues there. But mostly the answers are, are there. It's preserved on these papers as long as uh, they've all been microfilmed or uh, you know, today they're they're starting to get digitized. So the issue is getting access to all these things. Um, there are lots of subscription services out now for um, digitized collections, but it's still only a fraction of all the all the. I mean, the United States is a huge country. There's thousands of towns um, that all had newspapers. So we've got a ways to go. And I think uh, the, <clears throat> one of the challenges was uh, dealing with the very small towns because those were the ones that played the movie later. And so you have to have, you can't just call up, if, even if you don't have access, you can't just contact a library and, and say, hey, can you check such and such a date? I mean, I mean, you can't ask a broad question like, hey, when did, <laughs> when did Star Wars play in uh, such and such a town? That's too too broad a, a question. You would have to hire a researcher or, or, you know, or do it yourself. Whereas if, you, if you're in a library with the collection, you have access to the entire run. You just, it takes a while, but you can just systematically go through it and eventually you'll find it. So the small towns are a challenge, and uh, the bigger towns where the, where the papers are more accessible are a little easier to do. Another challenge was deciding, convincing myself that doing that article w w was a good idea because I had already written, you know, 
at least several just on that original movie. And I keep thinking, well, am I beating a dead horse at this point? What 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 else can you do? But as, as long as I do something different, I can kind of justify doing another version of it. Or if it's a big anniversary year, you can kind of justify <laughs> making an issue out of it. But there's so much data packed into the, the one in particular that you, you're asking about. It, it almost needs to be a book or a website unto itself. I think that as an article, it's it's almost too big. I think you're asking too much of a reader to... <laughs> And it, and it isn't just that list. There was a whole interview, historian Q&A thing in there as well, and box office data. And um, But at this point, so much information exists on Star Wars that I, I, I think a lot of people probably, they just sort of roll their eyes when they see it. I, I don't think they think they're going to get anything new in there. So it's really difficult to convince people that it's it's worth reading. Another challenge is, is, is dealing with uh, reader input. Uh, sometimes it can be uh, <laughs> contentious. I mean, people insisting uh, the information's incorrect or, you know, they, they remember it one way and I have it listed as another. And, you know, I do what I can to initially, sometimes these things get pretty pretty out of control, but I try to be professional about it in the beginning and just say, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll, sure, I'll double check it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, nine times out of 10, it, it checks out the way that I had it in there. You know, and then how do you convince a stranger that they're misremembering something? That's hard for people to wrap their head around because I'm of the opinion that long-term memory is uh, always suspect. Um, and I think, I think I've... I've I'd like to think that I've made a lot of friends or, or admirers of, of the work I do because of the position I've taken on, on the matter. But but I think there's there's just as many, maybe even more people who absolutely hate me because I'm pretty vocal about, you know, the, the research methodology. And uh, you, usually the clashes occur when source material conflicts with a person's memory. Because you, you asked earlier, what's the best source? And I, th- I think I answered the newspapers. But some people would answer that as personal experience. If somebody has a firsthand knowledge of something, that might be a pretty high-ranking uh, technique to assemble articles. But I think you're, you get into that issue of, of, of memory. If, if you're being asked to recall something years or even decades later, Especially people who have had long careers in a, in, a, in, a, in a particular field, you know, most people don't keep a journal. Most people don't record their daily actions, and most people don't really make a point to remember things. I think you're just going about your day, going about your life, and, and years later, all these, these sort of experiences and memories start, start to conflate with one another. Right, and it's an inherent risk for this podcast, for sure. Um, so I'm glad to have you around. And uh, yeah, I, I try to maintain a balance between first-hand anecdotes and documentary sources as best I can. Well, it's always interesting to hear people relate their stories. From a storytelling standpoint, it's always interesting to hear what people have to say. Whether or not it's accurate is kind of a secondary issue. As a listening experience, you know, for, on a podcast, for instance, or uh, you know, reading books, whatever, whatever the, the medium is, it's all, I always like to hear what people have to say. But as far as doing historical research, I think you have to kind of be a little, little more rigid in, in uh, trying to obtain the information. Just have to be, be careful. Um, and there's, there's no way to know if you're going to be accurate. And obviously on a large-scale project where you're dealing with, you know, potentially hundreds or thousands of pieces of individually researched items, there, there's no way that they're all going to be correct. I mean, no matter how good you think you are, no matter how diligent, no matter how thorough, nobody's bulletproof. So, you know, in the end, you hope you're at least knowledgeable enough about it that you're, you're, you're taking it seriously and you, you give yourself the best opportunity to be as accurate as you can. But there's no way it's all going to be accurate. Yeah, well, it's a massive undertaking. 
And beyond the chronology and geography of the movie's release, you were you're also open to confirm some technical details in terms of the 70 millimeter format and, and Dolby sound presentations, right? I was uh, very much interested in trying to figure all that out as well, because it seemed like uh, the general consensus uh, on those original runs is that the theaters had to install Dolby in order to get the movie. But I think I discovered fairly quickly, once you, you start looking at the original source material that was available at the time the movie was out, it they were not all in Dolby. I think Dolby uh, was was very new. That the company was was fairly new at the time, and just getting into film. And there's no way that a, a movie like Star Wars uh, and any of the people involved could have had the amount of clout to, to to make that happen. I think it's easy to look back and and, and when you see w- what happened due to the success, it's easy to think that it happened that way, but it didn't. Only some of the films, some of the presentations were in Dolby. I think I determined only about eight of the opening day prints were in. Seven 70 millimeter. I mean, those prints were very, very expensive. So if you're talking about a movie that, you know, Fox, for the most part, didn't really like, only some of the people involved really thought it had a chance. It seems absurd to, to believe that they were going to spend 10 grand on, on several of those prints. Um, so initially, they only made a few. But as the movie got popular, they made more. And so that's part of the, the, the false memories people have is you, you end up conflating uh, the overall release whereas some cities months into the run switched to uh, Dolby and or 70 millimeter six track Dolby. And so people tend to tend to remember that period of time, but not the beginning, like in the, uh, the making of the, the Rinsler series of books, they got uh, Brad Bird to write the uh, forward on one of them. Peter Jackson did the first one. Ridley Scott did Empire. Yeah, Brad Bird did Jedi. And he talks about growing up in Portland, Oregon and seeing Star Wars at the the Westgate in, in 70 millimeter on opening day. But, well, the, the Westgate was one of the theaters that opened it in 35. and right. only switched months in. So it's an easy mistake to make because you're, you're, you're sort of – all those memories are blended in blended together and you're only going to remember the sort of the, the collective uh, effect. One of the things I was fortunate to, to be able to do was uh, speak to one of the archivists at Dolby Labs and we were able to pull the installation records of the uh, the theaters that, that were able to open Star Wars in uh, back in May of 77. And so we could see which, which ones had a Dolby processor and which type of processor and then which ones didn't. And then I cross-checked that with the, the newspaper advertising for each of those cities to determine which ones were in Dolby and which ones were not. And it was fun. Because, because it was a movie I liked, I think it made the process of doing this work fun. If it had been a, something that didn't interest me, I probably would never even done it. If it had been an assignment, per se, I, I might not have been as interested. Um, but I felt like it's, uh, it's kind of like puzzle-making combined with a bit of archaeology, because back then, none of this stuff was online. Um, so the, all, the, all the resources are scattered. You have to find them. But it's very gratifying to see a, a picture emerge as you start to gather the information. You're able to kind of answer questions and connect the dots of things, and you see the, the story emerge. So there's some satisfaction in doing that. But then it just seemed like every, every couple of years I would try to build upon this and create a larger and larger work. And eventually it got to the point where I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool if you just had a, <laughs> a list of every place it played? I know that sounds crazy, but if it would be crazy if it were any other movie. If it were an ordinary movie, it would be ridiculous. But Star Wars means so much to so many people, and I think that its history is, is sort of being uh, lost or uh, distorted. So I feel like, well, if I can just play a small role in trying to, to kind of create a, a solid history in, in one aspect of it, then, uh, then I feel like I'm doing something good. 
you've done something more than good. Um, so beyond your historical endeavors, how has Star Wars maintained an influence on your life? And what part of those original cinematic experiences played in that? That's hard to answer. I still consider myself a fan of the original trilogy. Um, because of my age, I consider myself a, a first-generation fan, which <laughs> probably sounds snobby, but uh, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of the current films. Um, I will still see them. I've seen all the, all the newest ones, but I, I generally only see them the one time. I don't have much desire to see them again and again and again like I have with the original movies, but part of that is because I can't see them multiple times now that I have a family. Its uh, priorities have changed. Um, but, but the other thing is they don't appeal to me in the same way they did when I was a kid, so I, I kind of feel like I've aged out. Um, but because of that, I, I feel strongly about clinging to my, my memories of that original uh, 1977 to 83 period. And uh, I feel very lucky to have been, you know, between the ages of eight and 14 when those movies came out, because if I was a few years younger or a few years older, they might have just not been a thing. Absolutely. And uh, did you remain pretty engaged once the movies had left theaters? It never fully disappeared. There was always something going on, whether it was an animated TV series or a new ride at Disneyland or a new video release. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, I and a lot of my friends started getting into laser discs. Once you discovered that the movies were available letterboxed, that created a whole new uh, wave of excitement, new way of seeing, seeing the movies after seeing them in compromised uh, ver versions for so long. And then in, in uh, 93, the, uh, the big box set, Laserdisc, came out with fresh transfers and a lot of supplemental material. That, that kind of kept, kept the thing in the, the minds of people. And then there were new novels. The Timothy Zahn novels were out then. And once Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 and these movies that uh, had a lot of CGI, that, at that point you heard Lucas talking about, okay, now we can finally go make these movies. I think that's when it started ramping up again. The special, special editions was, uh, I mean, that's a, <laughs> a whole other topic, but that, as far as the cross-generational appeal, that was a pivotal moment because that enabled uh, a generation to see them in the theater for the first time, and here we are. One of the things that, that I notice often when I'm out and about, um, or, or often when I am taking my kid to school, um, it's, it's interesting to see young kids, like elementary school age, with, you know, Star Wars backpacks and Star Wars t-shirts and running around with lightsabers. And, uh, I, I, you know, back when those movies were new, the original movies, I, I never would have thought that it would still be a thing 30, 40 years later. But it obviously is. It has cross-generational appeal, which I think is going to mean that it is much bigger than any of us. It's, it's just going to kind of out, outlive all of us. I always thought of it as, as, a, as something from my generation, but it's clearly not anymore. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Michael. You're an unsung hero in the Star Wars community, and I've come to rely on your expertise and uh, really appreciate the work you do. Oh, well, well, thank you very much, and uh, thank you as well for uh, inviting me onto the podcast. 
Thanks again to Michael for sharing his story and for all of the knowledge that he provides. I've included links to his Digital Bits column and A Force to be Reckoned with Star Wars Retrospective in the show notes, along with a number of other resources and images on the main site, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com. Be sure to scour for your hometown theater in Michael's article, as there's a good chance it's in there. I looked up my longtime place of cinema worship, the Arlington in Santa Barbara, and was satisfied to find out about its 10-week run of Star Wars that started in July of 77. As for the podcast, that's essentially a wrap on what I've called Season 3. With the Skywalker Saga's theatrical legacy coming to an end for the third and maybe truly final time in a few short weeks with Episode 9, I'll hopefully release a, a mini-episode of sorts to memorialize and, and hopefully celebrate. However things play out, it's going to be a significant moment, so savor that anticipation and excitement as much as you can. With that in mind, keep an eye out for a Rise of Skywalker update to the Theatrical Photo Gallery section on the website, and take lots of photos of your own. I'd love to feature them. In the meantime, you can follow the project on Instagram at Star Wars at the Movies, on Twitter at SW at the Movies, on the site's Facebook page and group, and as always, feel free to get in touch via email at StarWarsAtTheMovies at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, especially come December 20th, relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. <laughs>